This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 49. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everybody? This is Josh Dorkin, host of the Bigger Pockets Podcast, here with Mr. Brandon Turner, my excellent co-host. What up, Brandon? What up, Josh? You're not feeling too well today, are you? I'm bumming, man. I'm totally bumming. Yeah, you got to get over that. Come on. Yeah, well, it's a good thing the interview was recorded another day. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you're only bumming here during the intro. That's okay, but people can't tell. You're feeling great. I'm feeling awesome. Things are good. Things are good. How about you? Things are great? Things are great. And I uh, heard there was a fire uh, right through <laughs> one of your rental properties the other night. There was. We on Facebook, somebody says there's a house burning on you know a big house burning on this street, and I'm like, hey, that's my brand new triplex. Yeah, and so we sat there for a half an hour trying to figure out if it was ours, and it ended up being the next door neighbor's house burned. Nice. So. Well, which which is not nice. It's never nice when somebody's house burns, but. Uh, it was it was interesting. I was on the phone with uh, Brandon while this was all going on, and and he he couldn't manage to figure out how to get the police or fire department on the phone. <laughs> Nobody would answer their phone. <laughs> Apparently, they all go home at eight o'clock at night. That's that's uh, that's the power of a small town living, right? There you go, rural, rural. All right, guys, let's let's get to today's quick tip. Quick tip. All right, so. In some cases, folks, uh, Gmail uh, is being sent to spam. So uh, in our Bigger Pockets newsletter, uh, those newsletters in some cases are going to spam for our Gmail users. Not all of them, but for, for some of them. And uh, please let, help us to let Google know that we aren't doing anything weird or bad or anything like that. If you go to biggerpockets.com slash Gmail, we've got some information that'll help walk you through how to make sure your uh, uh, newsletters and other bigger pockets mail doesn't show up in the wrong place. Rural. 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 <laughs> um, all right, guys. So today's show is with the, the great Amanda Hahn. And you may not know Amanda Hahn, but she's going to do wonders for your business, I think. I agree. Uh, yeah. So Amanda is a, a CPA and a real estate investor. She's a really, really funny and smart lady. Uh, you know, we, we, the goal of this show is to talk about uh, boring types of things <laughs> like taxes. However, as we always do, we try and keep it light and entertaining for you. And I think uh, this was one of the funniest shows we've done. I actually agree. Yeah. So shocking that that a CPA has has something to do other than crunch numbers, <laughs> but this one has a sense of humor. So check it out. Anyway, we're going to cover a lot of. Really good uh, tax tips, loopholes, deductions, and more to save you a lot of money and uh, help you build wealth even faster with more security. Uh, so definitely pay close attention. And uh, really quick before we start the show, this is show, show 49. And uh, you can find us on the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 49. And real quickly, I wanted to say this is a interesting episode because it's a CPA coming on. But I wanted to, you know, we encourage everyone to jump into the show notes after the show to ask questions, which I still want to encourage everyone to do. We really want to encourage the conversation. However, this isn't necessarily, I don't, I want to encourage people not to go on and ask specific tax tips 
from Amanda on the show notes page saying, you know, I just bought this thing. I don't know what entity I should have because she can't tell you any information anyway because she doesn't know your story. So anyway, that's my second quick tip is ask questions, but try not to be too specific because she can't answer. Yeah, just, you know, ask stuff that would apply to other people. Uh, You know, getting getting down to the minutiae about your own situation. That's when you pay an accountant, guys. (laughs) You got to do it. You know, I know everybody is trying to, you know, do it as cheap as possible. But unlike you you and I, who who uh, took advantage of a few quick uh, we did we did indeed tips during the show yes passive income without the property headache it's possible there's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants maintenance or property management the wealthy have been doing this for years and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals how by investing in a private real estate fund with ppr capital management PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from six, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com VP. Connectinvest.com VP. You ever feel like your vacation rentals since empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Yes, so, so with that, why don't, we, uh, why don't we get to Amanda. Amanda, welcome to the show. Good to have you. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me on the show today. Awesome. Thank you for being here. Uh, we are going to talk about tax tips today because everyone knows that's the most fun activity we can talk about, right? Wait, wait a second. Wait, <laughs> we're talking about tax. Hold, this is your show. You got this one, Brent. I'm out of here. <laughs> All right, bye, Josh. I'll take over. No, I, th- we're going we're gonna to keep this light. We're going to keep this fun today uh, because this is really, 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 really important for real estate it is. investors. It it's- is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, normally, as you guys probably know, we don't do a lot of shows wrapped around topics. Um, but uh, we felt this was so important, and we uh, 
we know how good and, and savvy Amanda here is, so uh, we figured we'd tweak it up a bit. So let's jump right in. Amanda, tell us a little yeah. bit about yourself. We know you're a CPA, but uh, do you also invest in real estate? I do. In fact, uh, I'm actually a, a third-generation real estate investor in my family. So oh. when my grandparents, yeah, when they immigrated to the U.S., they started with condo investments. So ever since I was a, a kid, I remember going and helping with, with make readies when, you know, tenant turnovers and stuff. And, you know, I love painting and all that kind of good stuff. Nice. Um, so that was my first exposure to real estate. However, I have to say that my my family didn't teach me to go into real estate. Um, what, what they taught me to do was to go to school, get a degree. Um, and I ended up with one of the big four firms, uh, coincidentally in the real estate tax department. So I was doing strategies and taxes for uh, some of the developers and investment partnerships. And it wasn't until I read this little unknown book called Rich Dad Poor Dad. Have you guys heard of it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we might, we, maybe we'll just change the name of the show. I mean, like, uh, geez, man. <laughs> so it wasn't until I read that book that I personally, you know, starting to looking at my clients and, and looking at, wow, you know, the, the amount of money they're making, the type of wealth they're building, and the small amount of taxes they're paying. That's when I personally started to look into real estate for myself. Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. So, so what's what's your personal investing strategy? Are you are you a buy and hold investor? Are you flipping houses while crunching numbers? What, what do you do? Do do taxes like you know while painting rooms? <laughs> no, I I definitely crunch the numbers. Um, I'm more of a long term hold investor. Uh, most of my stuff are single families, condos. Uh, the ones that 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 I more actively manage and acquire myself. I also have some holdings in apartments as well, but those are more in a passive um, in a passive role with syndicated deals. Uh, I would love to be a fix and flipper because I do see the amount of money that my clients make from flipping, um, <laughs> but I just don't have the stomach for that. <laughs> Yeah, 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 but you, but you do have the stomach for you know tenants telling you that their toilet's clogged. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe I, maybe I misspoke. So I do manage managers. I'm not okay, the one actually. Yeah. All right, just smart, smart. just making sure. Yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> right so, on. Right so on. Do you buy just locally, or do you buy anywhere that there's a good deal? You know, in fact, um, I'm from Las Vegas originally, okay. so most of my investments are in Las Vegas. We do have some out of state, um, I, and I do have a few in Southern California as well, um, which were my were our my recent purchases. So I would say the majority of my investments are actually out of state. So I, I'm actually curious about that because yeah, you know, I used to live in SoCal about ten, well, eight years ago, and and you know. Everybody was looking at Vegas, but Vegas had the the monster monster bubble. Um, how how were you affected by by all that? I mean, because there was a tremendous build up and a tremendous crash. Mm-hmm. That is a great question. I think that's in line with my investment strategy. Like I said earlier, I'm more of a long term hold investor, so I always buy for cash flow. Yeah. Um, and because of that, the bubble really didn't impact me at all. In fact, when the bubble burst several years ago. That was when I uh, acquired most of my property, so okay. it worked to my advantage. Great, great, and and I think that's great advice for anyone listening. You know, the the key on on uh, investments, uh, you know, having quality investments is is knowing when to buy and buying, you know, at the right price. I mean, if you're if you're buying for appreciation, 
you know, those, those bubbles and, 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 uh, the ups and downs of the market are really going to affect you more. But if you could get in at a, at a price where, um, you know, your, your rents are, are pretty solid, um, and you could take a little bit of a hit on them even, then, then you're probably going to be, uh, pretty good to last through the ups and downs of the markets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I, I bought a duplex at the height of the market, my first rental property, and it was at the very height. And I paid, like I don't know, 80, 85, 90,000. Today, the thing's probably worth like 70 or maybe even 60. But I love the fact that it doesn't matter because I, I bought it with good cash flow. Like it cash flows every month. So people always ask, you know, like, well, people who don't like real estate and don't know real estate, they ask me like, how could you be in that? The market goes up and down so much. Isn't that risky? But when you're doing buy and hold cash flow investing, it's not that risky as long as you're smart about when you buy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Hey, Amanda, I, I had a quick question. You mentioned something earlier and we haven't really talked about it. Uh, syndicated deals. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, I didn't plan on speaking about this, but since you mentioned it, I, I'd love it if you could at least kind of fill the listeners in a little bit on what's, what's a syndication? What, what does that mean? Obviously, uh, for, well, not obviously, but for those people listening, this is definitely a, a higher level topic. Uh, so if you're unfamiliar, you know, you might want to take some notes. Sure. Um, so syndication is commonly known as group investing. Uh, we represent clients who do syndications and a lot of our clients invest in syndicated deals. So um, generally what that means is let's say, you know, Josh, you found a great apartment deal and you needed to raise a million dollars for down payment. So what you would do is you work with an attorney to put together a offering um, and then that offering is presented to, you know, your network of friends, family, outside investors. And so if I was interested in yours, in your particular investment, I might put 10000 or 50000 into the deal and I would be, you know, maybe a 5% owner in that particular deal. Um, typically in syndicated investments, for me as an investor, I'm passive in nature. So I essentially give you the money. You make all the day-to-day decisions of acquisition, management, firing people. Um, and then I just kind of sit back and hopefully get my return, get my cash flow, get my appreciation. Gotcha. And what are, what are those return? What are, what's, I guess, the average typical range on, on return on some kind of syndication deal? Is, is it similar to, to say, a uh, you know typical... Uh, you know, cap rate or, or are we looking at something different? <laughs> That's a great question. It really depends on the deal itself. You know, just like when you invest, the cap rate's different from market to market from time yeah. to time. Yeah. Um, you know, I I've, I have my money in two different syndicated deals uh, and I'll share my story with you. One of them is pretty much worthless. Oh, <laughs> so, wah, wah. so the return is terrible. Yeah. Uh, I have another one which has been doing great, um, roughly about 18% return per year. Okay. Um, so I was really happy with that one. So it really depends. What I always tell my clients is when you're looking at syndicated deals, the number one most important thing to look at is the syndicator themselves, the team behind the deal, because they are the decision makers. That's really, really good. So, so how do you find a good, you know, syndicator then? How do you find somebody who you can trust and that you believe in that's going to give you the 18 and not the 0% return? (laughs) Well, the first tip is to just Google their name. Okay. You never (laughs) know, uh, you know, you meet people at investment clubs uh, all the time and they'll tell you, I've got this great deal and today's the last day. I always tell my 
clients, be wary of that because good deals always come and go and you you don't ever want to jump into something. If you don't know the syndicator team, at least Google their name, you know, so Google Brandon Turner and (laughs) fraud, for example, they'll show up anything that's, you know, fraudulent related. Um, And another thing is just to talk with other investors. You know, a lot of the syndicators that are good, uh, they will have deals under their belt. So you can talk to people who've invested with them in the past um, and get an idea of, you know, how they've done, what their track record is. By the way, everyone's going to go Google Brandon Turner fraud now. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully that doesn't turn anything up or or my background check guy didn't do a good job. (laughs) Well, it may. Brandon Turner is the name of a famous skateboarder, apparently. And uh, I don't know if he did some shady skateboarding deals. (laughs) So, yeah, Uh, that's funny. Well, so, Amanda, (laughs) um, do you need to be an accredited investor to participate in syndication deals or or can anyone do it? And, And can you explain what an accredited investor is while we're at it? Yes, that is a great question. Um, that's actually not my expertise. You know, this is a great question for uh, a syndication attorney. In fact, I just took a class from Jean Trowbridge, who is a syndication attorney that teaches for the commercial real estate arena, um, because there has been a lot of changes. So um, prior to the Jobs Act, uh, accredited only accredited investors slash sophisticated investors, which means, you know, financial planners, CPAs, people who are financially savvy could invest in syndications. But that's changed now, actually. Um, Syndicators can take on non-accredited, non-sophisticated investors. But there are a lot of um, restrictions and rules that they need to watch out for. Um, So that's definitely something to run by an attorney before yeah. you proceed. It's it's really important when you're when you're dealing with you know raising money um, to protect yourself and make sure you're adhering to the rules. And I, I think that's a it's a great point. And I was actually going to say that you know if if you're at all interested in this topic, and and I think we are going to cover this topic in more depth uh, in the coming year. Um, definitely make sure you talk to an attorney. Don't go out and. You know, just say, "Hey, I'm trying to raise money," and start putting advertising it and, and whatnot. Before you do anything, find a good attorney uh, who who deals with this kind of stuff and talk to them. Find out what's okay and get the ins and outs uh, because there's there's a lot of stuff that can get you in trouble if you if you mess it up. Yeah, that is very true. Very yeah. true. Cool. Well, well. Uh, Definitely interesting. Definitely interesting. It's cool to know about your background, but you know what? Frankly, we don't really care about your background. We're here to talk about taxes. <laughs> I care. I care. I, I care too. Actually, Amanda is is one of our writers on the Bigger Pockets blog, and and she uh, she writes some really really awesome stuff. If you guys have not yet uh, checked her out, uh, obviously we'll we'll make sure to link to to her articles on the show notes at biggerpockets.com/show49. But let, let's let's kind of shift and transition to the tax stuff. Um, uh, are there any important tax changes that investors need to know about for for basically 2014 and beyond? Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. Actually, some of the big changes that impact real estate investors and the general public as a whole actually already took place in 2013. Um, I don't know if you guys remember what you were doing uh, for New Year's Eve last year, uh, but for us as CPAs, we were really uh, hanging on the edge of our seat to look at what was going to happen with the fiscal cliff. So 
Um, if you guys don't already know, what happened as a result of the fiscal cliff was that Congress passed a new bill. It was called the Taxpayers Relief Act of 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of the relief was, you know, it makes you feel like, hey, the taxes have gone down. We're all saved from this crisis. Uh, but one of the major changes that came out from that bill actually related to real estate investors. Um, so if you've heard of Obamacare tax, correct? What's Obamacare? What, what Obamacare. Is what is that? <laughs> <laughs> Obamacare or the surtax. Um, so essentially what that is in short is it's a additional 3.8% tax on investment income. And that's important to us as real estate investors because we make rental income uh, for those of us with cash flow rental real estate. Um, also, when we sell properties, we have potential capital gains um, that might be subject to this new tax. Um, and also, if uh, any of the listeners today have trustee investments, you generate interest income. That's another one that's potentially subject to this new tax as well. So very important change that came out uh, effective January this year. I, I thought the 3.8 was uh, was for a very specific target um Something like 250k in profits or above was it was it was pretty narrow though, wasn't it? It's not just anybody who who makes income is is paying the two point the three point eight percent. Is that correct? Correct, correct. So um, the this tax is subject to individuals who make total two hundred thousand dollars per year or more. Um, or if you're married, two hundred fifty thousand dollars or more. So that's kind of like a marriage penalty, right? Because yeah. if you're single, it's two hundred, and married, it's only two fifty. <laughs> nice, nice. I just want to point out really quickly to to Brandon, who's who's listening along with our listeners, that you know, I, I know a thing or two about th- this stuff. Man. You do. Yeah. I know. Did you see me looking impressed when you said I, that? I did. I saw your eyeballs pop out of your head. Oh, I just wow. Yeah. I'm surprised too. I'm very surprised because we we <laughs> teach on this topic quite a bit, and not a lot of people know the rules or have even heard of it. Yeah, well, Josh, you you're not just a good face. You're also a good mom. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. All right. Anyway, no. Okay. So, well, that's, yeah, that was definitely a very, very important change. Uh, are there any others that come to mind just, you know, really quickly? Um, yeah. Another one that's along the same line is another 0.9% and that's on earned income. Uh, and similar threshold, it's people who make 200 or 250 and over. Um, that one more impacts real estate investors who are maybe flipping or wholesaling or doing syndication. Okay, so that's uh, kind of the evil twin sister to the uh, Obamacare tax. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, all right, so is there anything other than making less money uh, that we can do to protect ourselves from from these changes? <laughs> well, I wouldn't look at it as making less money. It's just uh, more about making the right type of money. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, you guys know one of the best things of being a real estate investor, especially as a as a as a landlord, um, is deducting depreciation expense was is a paper loss. Yeah. So um, even though there are all these brand new taxes and they're taking away deductions, depreciation is still uh, you know is still a strategy we can use. And in fact, for the most part, with depreciation, not a lot of people. Um, not all of our clients, at least, are going to be paying this brand new tax anyway because it's based on net investment income. So it's after mortgage interest, after property taxes, management fees, and all that great stuff. 
Okay. Say, could you actually touch on something real quick, just for those who maybe aren't investors yet and maybe are a little bit newer at this game? Can you kind of explain what depreciation actually is? Like, what do you mean by, you know, that's a great benefit that we have? Because it is, but I want to make sure everybody who doesn't own rental property yet also understands why it's kind of cool. Sure. Uh, so the IRS has a, a loophole. Uh, basically, what they think is that they think that real estate, you know, just like when you buy a car, the IRS feels like, well, the car is going to go down in value. And so if you bought it for $10,000, you get to deduct part of that per year because it's assumed to be going down in value. And they apply that same theory to real estate. So if you buy a house for 100000 for example, then the IRS says, well, I think you've owned it for a year. Now it's lower in value. So you get to write off part of that $100,000 purchase price. Um, and that's a huge benefit for real estate investors because you know, even if you're in a time period where it's appreciating in value, the IRS still allows you to take a write-off assuming that it's still going down in value. So that's what we refer to as a paper loss. Essentially, you're taking a tax deduction and nothing actually really happened. You're, the value hasn't gone down. You haven't spent additional money on that. So is that lowering your base? Is that essentially what that does? Um, correct. So it lowers your basis so that in the future when you sell, um, then you have a lower basis to calculate what your gain is going to be. Gotcha. gotcha. So that that means you'll when you sell though you're going to end up paying more later on, right? I mean, you got to pay back that depreciation eventually, correct? Potentially, if, if you sell at a gain. Okay. Um, and there are other strategies uh, such as a 1031 exchange where you can defer the gain um, to the extent that you're going to buy a replacement property. Let's say you're selling a single family, you're buying a duplex, then you could potentially defer the tax on that gain. Okay. okay, that's cool. So, wh- what other what other important write offs do do investors have? I, you know, I I think probably the the most famous is going to be the mortgage write off, right? Yeah, the mortgage interest write off. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, one of the things that came out in two thousand thirteen, in fact, is for primary homeowners. Okay, if your income is over two hundred fifty thousand single or three hundred married, um, that the IRS is going to start limiting your mortgage interest deduction. Really? Now, the key here is I yes. don't know that one. Oh, see, I, I got to make more money to worry about it. Yeah, but I don't make enough to worry about that, so it's all good. <laughs> Um, so, so that's on primary homeowners, and but the good thing about it is for us as real estate investors, there's still no cap. So whatever your mortgage interest expenses, that's always going to be a write-off against rental income. Gotcha. Hey, so there's a lot of debate out there because I, I think it's been floated around in Congress that uh, now's, now's a good time to kill off the, the, the mortgage interest write-off. Do, do you see that as just kind of uh, politicking or, or do you see that as potentially having any steam behind it? Um, you know, I think we're already seeing that in action. I, I, I don't think that they would get rid of it completely. Um, but with the phase out, right, if you make over 250 or 300, they're already phasing out your home mortgage interest. So, yes, indirectly, they have already started to take that away. Um, the good news is that under the new rules, they can only take away up to 80% of your mortgage interest. Okay, So you can always, de- you can always deduct 20% of your mortgage interest, no matter how much money you make. Okay, but but previous previous to this uh, to this uh, adjustment, it was it was a hundred percent, wasn't it? 
Correct. Correct. Wow. So they're they're taking away a significant amount of write off. So for for those higher net worth individuals, it's starting to make a lot more sense to pay in cash than it is to to hold on and and pay a note so that you can have those write offs. Potentially, that's yeah. correct. But that's only yeah. for your primary residence, or is that for anybody's yeah. rental? Even if they're rich, you know, their rental property is still one hundred percent. Exactly. And okay. the reason is because rental is kind of like a business, yeah. you know, so so they're not limiting the deduction for investors. Well, that is a fascinating piece of information. And uh, that, that changes my mind on buying that $10 million house I was looking at. <laughs> 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 Me too, Josh. Me too. Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Well, hey, let, let's move on a little bit to some tax planning stuff. Um, what exactly is tax planning? And why do we need to plan for it? Sure. Um, you know, I think a lot of people feel tax planning is something very scary and only very rich people do. You know, rich people like Josh do tax planning. Um, <laughs> can I can I open my books to you, Amanda? <laughs> just 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 to prove and demonstrate that yeah, that's that's just wrong. <laughs> I got three kids um, to feed. <laughs> you know, tax planning could be, a, a, you know, a very simple process. Really, it's about open communication, open communication with your tax advisor. What I always encourage people to do is to to stay in touch with your tax advisor throughout the year. Um, because, you know, we all know tax law is changing all the time. Um, and it, it is hard for the average investor or average taxpayer to keep up to date on what all the changes are. And so from a planning perspective, you really just want to lean on your advisor, um, you know, give them a call from time to time. For investors, you know, whenever you're buying or selling a property or you're entering into a new or different kind of transaction, those are always great times to just call your advisor um, because they will be able to tell you, hey, you're going to, you know, you're going to do a lease option. You're going to sell something via lease option. So uh, what are the things we should look out for? How should we structure this? Should we have an entity? Um, so from a taxpayer's perspective, it's really easy. It's really just about communication. What do you th- what do you think at, at what stage in the real estate game should somebody actually go and talk to a tax advisor? I mean, I know from a from a CPA standpoint, you probably say, you know, always. But like if I'm brand new, I don't have any rental property yet. I want to get into the game. Should I talk to one before I get started after I have one property, 10 properties? When does that make question. sense? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a great question. Um, and then my answer might surprise you. So, no, I don't think everyone needs to have a tax strategist and have this overall plan and legal entities. Um, but I do think it's a good idea that as you get started, even before you purchase your first property, to at least have a quick conversation with the CPA so you know what are some of the things you want to look out for based on your scenario. Um, before you close on your first property, that's definitely a good time to have a more in-depth conversation. Um, so that's what I would say for you know newbie investors, at least have a conversation. I mean, before you get started, you, you do want to interview a couple different advisors just to see you know which one works with you, which one jives with your personality. Okay. And where, where and how would I go and find somebody? Is there a specific certification that I'd be looking for? And in particular, um, you know, I know there's a, a lot of tax advisors out there, but there's not a ton that are uh, super savvy in the world of real estate, or is that not true? Yeah, I think, um, you know, asking fellow investors is a great place to start um, going to real estate clubs. And, you know, when you go, you'll know who are the people who are doing the deals, who are active in investment. Um, ask them who they're using. 
most likely they're using someone who is well-versed in real estate. From a designation perspective, um, if you can, you know, if you can work with the CPA, that's always the best because they're the ones with the highest level of training. Um, you know, I would just stay away from a lot of the franchise type of tax prep shops. Um, and the only reason is because a lot of times you're working with people who are just coming out of college yeah. or, or maybe you didn't even go to college. Um, so, you know, from that respect, maybe you might as well just, you know, do the research and do the tax returns yourself. Yeah. Is that, a, and, and that's a, probably a pretty good point. I mean, you're, you're talking, we're not going to name names, but um, <laughs> there are people who will, will, come out without degrees working at these places who, who are doing preparation um, and, and it's something to, to be cautious of. Yeah, and I think when you're interviewing CPAs, it's also important just to make sure they understand your business, you know, make sure they understand your lingo. So if you're talking about depreciation or if you're talking about um, lease options, you know, hopefully that's something they already understand so that you don't have to be the one educating them on what those are. Well, and I think if you're educating your CPA or your accountant <laughs> or tax advisor on what a lease option is, uh, it's probably time to find a new one. Yeah. Hey, how, how important do you think it is that your CPA invests in real estate as well? I know a lot of people say that's a good idea to find someone. Is that vital or is that just a good idea? Um, gosh, it, it, you know, for me, I, f I feel like it is very important because I do have clients who uh, have good CPAs, but their CPAs will advise against real estate investing, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe because they're CPA slash financial advisors. Um, who want to direct you towards the stock market, uh, or maybe they personally just don't like real estate. So, um, you know, I don't think it's the end of the world that they don't, but but I think it's very very helpful if they also invest in real estate as well. Okay, yeah. all right, cool. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, you know, you you had mentioned earlier entities, and and uh, mm -hmm. I'd you know we didn't we didn't have it in our notes to to cover this, but you know I think it's an important topic. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? You know. It, yeah, you're you're talking about me not purchasing a property as Joshua Dorkin, correct? You're you're talking about creating a company, an LLC, an S corp, a C corp, uh, something like that, and and purchasing either one property in that entity or or purchasing multiple properties in that entity. Is that right? Correct, correct. And um, I'm glad you're asking me about entities because that's probably one of the most common questions that I get asked uh, when, you know, when I speak, whether presenting or talking to clients. So um, I know you're going to hate me, but the answer really is it depends. <laughs> yep. uh, but I'll give you a little bit more than Amanda, that. Amanda, make a show. decision here. Okay? <laughs> we want real answers. This isn't this. You are not running for Congress. You need to answer the question. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so it, 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 what it depends on is it depends first and foremost on what you're doing in real estate, right? Because we don't want to make the assumption that everyone's doing rental real estate. Yeah. Um, so if you're if you're doing rental real estate, um, the tip here is that from an entity perspective, okay, it really makes no difference uh, on your taxes. Okay, as a as a real estate as a rental real estate investor, you get the same. Uh, deductions, the same depreciation, the same write-offs, whether you hold that piece of property in an LLC or if you hold it in your personal name. Okay. And so a lot of times when you hear people talk about, oh, you must have your rental in an LLC, generally what they're referring to is the asset protection side of things. 
Um, and I'm not an asset protection attorney, so you know I won't I won't tell you all my crazy thoughts about that. Oh, we but... want to hear them. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh, I don't even know if I can say stuff like this on the show. Um... <laughs> you, well, well, let's let's upfront it with Amanda is not giving any legal advice, and and uh, of course you need to speak to an attorney about anything and everything that you hear on. Uh, on this and frankly all our shows uh, you know if you're if you're going to make any decisions in real estate you definitely want to seek the advice of counsel before going forward so okay i like that so uh, for me whenever i look at entity for rental real estate um, from an asset protection perspective i'm always looking at the cost benefit so for example if i have a client who has you know no, not a lot of assets personally, just starting out in real estate, they have really no equity in the property, um, then it might be okay for them to actually hold that property in their personal name. Why? Because they have no equity and they have no assets that they're concerned with. Right. Um, on the other hand, if it's someone with a lot of net worth, then yes, you, you know, I would highly suggest an entity. Uh, what I hate is a lot of times I have clients that come to me after they formed five different LLCs and, you know, the LLCs are set up to do such and such. And this one is set up to do such and such, but they're not really doing anything. Um, and the reason I don't like that is because they've incurred a lot of costs to form them, first of all. And then they're going to have to pay me a lot of money because the entities have to file tax returns. Right. And if they're lucky or unlucky enough to be in California, the state wants $800 per entity. No matter what, if you don't even make a dollar, you got to pay 800 bucks. Yep. Exactly. If you make no, even if you lose money, you still got to pay them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, I think that's it's important to hear. I mean, you know, again, Amanda's not giving legal advice on what you should do, but she's just kind of talking about, you know, her her take, her opinion on it, um, just to clarify and CYA, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of people will will kind of assume that you have to do it, and and I think the the main reason that that asset protection attorneys will tell you to do that is primarily. You know, to to protect yourself uh, if you've got money. And, and yeah, I, like I said, I think the biggest misconception is people feel that you know um, I have rental properties, but I it's not in an LLC, so I might have gone to a real estate conference. Oh, but I can't deduct it because I don't have an LLC, and, and that's absolutely incorrect. As long as you have an expense related to your rental, you could deduct it regardless of what funds you paid that that expense with. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, however, so on the other on the other end of the spectrum, if you're someone who is active in real estate, meaning you're wholesaling or you're flipping or you're syndicating, you're doing money raising stuff, um, then entity does have a tax impact. Um, so from a tax side, I, you know, I do strategize with people on what that is. So can you explain that? Because there there is an actual distinction between somebody who's active in real estate and somebody who is not active in real estate. And what does that mean exactly? Sure. So uh, when someone is a rental real estate investor, um, you are never subject to self-employment taxes. Okay. On the other hand, if you're someone who is active in real estate, wholesale, flipping, raising money, that type of income is subject to self-employment tax. And the, the easiest way to look at it is um, you know, for people who make W-2 income, right, we have our money coming from our paycheck. And then as part of the paycheck, you know, part of that money is taken out in payroll taxes. 
So payroll and self-employment taxes are essentially one and the same. Um, the reason there's a difference is because the IRS, again, just penalizes people who actually work for a living. So they're saying if you're if you're actively involved, if you're you know on the short term buying, selling, wholesale, that type of stuff, then not only are you going to pay income taxes, but you're also going to pay self-employment taxes on that income. Gotcha. Gotcha. Hold on a second. I need to wake up, Brandon. He, he fell asleep there. <laughs> no, I'm here. This is fascinating because, uh, yeah. I, oh, there he is. I'm here. I just, you know, I mute, I mute my mic so my cats that are tend to walk across my uh, <laughs> keyboard don't make noises. <laughs> isn't, Amanda, isn't there, there's, there's also um, something to do with active real estate for somebody who spends X amount of their time doing real estate? What, what's that all about? Uh, yes, I think what you're referring to is uh, active real estate with respect to rentals. Yeah. And um, Ma- so, manage the management of the rentals. Yeah, that's what it was. Correct. So, um, you know, again, going back, rental real estate is never subject to self-employment taxes. Okay. So if you spend 700 hours or 10,000 hours on real estate, you would still never be subject to the self-employment taxes. And so from that perspective, that's what I was talking about earlier. It doesn't matter whether you have a legal entity or no legal entity. Now, when you're when you're flipping real estate, for example, um, that money is generally always going to be subject to self-employment tax. So right. typically, from an entity structuring perspective, um, we recommend that you flip inside of an entity, such as an S corporation or a C corporation, so that you don't have to um, so so that it minimizes the self employment taxes that you pay. Just just, just so our listeners can tell, <laughs> Brandon has called his cat over. I did not call s- it to now sit on it, his lap, distracting both Amanda and I. It, I did not call it over. It just he saw that I was warm and lonely, lonely, and decided <laughs> to come and uh, hang out. So oh, he saw he, that you were falling asleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, he's, hey, he's gone. See what I mean? But 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 okay. So no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. But but in terms of management, you know, there are specific uh, uh, tax implications of being an active participant in the management of your property versus not being active. Is that correct? Uh, potentially, kind of depends on your income. Okay. So you know, the IRS has a this quirky little rule that says, okay, if 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 you're someone who's doing rental real estate. And, uh, you, you know, you have depreciation, you have all these write-offs. But if you're someone with higher income, then you don't get to use the, those losses to offset your other income, like W-2, for example. Um, but the way around that is that you show them that you're actively involved in managing your real estate. And that's typically referred to as real estate professional status. Yep. Yep. Does that mean you're the one out there plunging toilets and getting cats from underneath the house? Um, not necessarily, um, real estate professional just means that you have to be spending more time in real estate than you do at your other jobs or businesses. Okay. So if you're someone, let's say you're a part-time, uh, you're a part-time teacher and you teach, uh, 20 hours or let's say you teach 10,000, 2000 hours a year. Well, that means you have to be spending at least $2,000 in your real estate activities, not necessarily plunging toilets. You know, you could be taking classes or looking for properties, but you do have to be spending more time in real estate than being a teacher. 
Well, what about what about this then? I'm getting specific because you know I I can because I'm the co-host here. So Wait, it clear, clearly, Brandon is <laughs> now gonna, about to take advantage. I have of taken advantage free, of this free accounting. tax strategy. Yeah, oh, here we go. Man. <laughs> well, here's what I'm wondering: a person who has a job like me, who's working for Bigger Pockets 40 hours a week. My wife works full time on the rental properties. She works, you know, full time. So, do we claim that or not? Yes, you can, um, because so you, as a married couple, that's very common uh, that one spouse is working maybe full time, the other person does the real estate. So, yes, in your example, if your wife's not doing anything else, she's spending at least seven hundred and fifty hours for the whole year on your real estate, then she can qualify as real estate professional. And the best part about that is. Now you guys collectively can use all the real estate losses to offset your income from your W-2. Nice. Nice. See, that so, was a good question. I bet there's lots it, of people. It was. Out there. It was. And and just so you know, you will be billed. Uh, let's see. That was about four minutes and four minutes. Uh, Amanda charges a thousand an hour. So yeah. Okay. 40 bucks. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't do the math. Um, wow. No, that's great. That's great. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm curious, have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. 
Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A. Biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers a targeted 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of net profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, are first in line to get paid. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of a physical asset mitigate downside risk. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by directing your funds from Wall Street to Main Street and supporting local economies. The investment is reserved for accredited investors. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com BP. pinefinancialgroup.com BP. Okay, so let's... Uh... I don't know. Let's move on a little bit to, cause I know we could, this could be like the longest show we've ever done. So we don't want it to be the longest show ever. Uh, why don't we move on to, I this- would like it to be the longest show ever. I think Amanda is fantastic. What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> I, I agree. Well, what I want to know is we are like, for those listening live right now, or, you know, the day this comes out, the few days afterwards, we are at the very, very, very tail end of 2013. So I'm wondering, are there any, we talked about, things changing and there were some things that happened at the beginning of the year. We've got a week or two left. Is there anything we need to be doing right now for those listening or anything we should be concerned about, about taxes this year? Yeah. Yeah. Well, a couple big, a couple tips. So um, this is the last year of bonus depreciation. Um, You know, we talked a little little bit about depreciation earlier. So uh, this year, if you bought new assets for your business, for example, you bought a new large SUV, let's say, that you're using for your business. Must be nice, Brandon. I don't have an SUV. (laughs) Um, This is the last year that you could write off up to 50% of that purchase price all in one year. Um, Does that count for rental houses? I'm assuming. Uh, You're just talking equipment, right? Yes, uh, yes, not not the property itself. So uh, if you okay. bought a house, you can't write off fifty percent of it. But oh, you know, darn. if you bought a computer or you bought new trucks, SUVs, um, appliances for your rentals, okay, mm. all these. As long so the the caveat is it has to be brand new. So if you're uh, a slumlord and you're buying used Brandon. refrigerators, that does not apply. It has I to buy be brand new. I buy used, but I'm not a sl- okay. Maybe I am. yeah, you, you yeah <laughs> no yeah, and I'll I'll stand up for other slum. I mean. <laughs> Landlords out there, just because you buy used equipment doesn't mean you're a slumlord. <laughs> Thank Let's, you, Josh. Yes, yes, Thank yes, you. yes. I've, I, yeah. No, but I, but that, that's, that's great. That's really interesting. So uh, essentially, we've got uh, two weeks left to to spend some cash. Is what you're saying? Spend some cash, exactly. And then also, you know, um, from a year end perspective, uh, outside of depreciation, you know, if you're someone who does a lot of marketing, um, or you know, just I would, I would look at. Ahead in two thousand in January two thousand fourteen, what are some you know major expenses you think you're going to incur if you're going to you know redesign your website, for example? It could make sense for you to charge that expense on your card before the end of the year. That way, you know you're just prepaying for that by what two a week or two, but yeah. you accelerate that deduction for one entire year. Yeah, 
No, that's good advice. That's very good advice. Time yeah. to figure out how to spend this money. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so that's no, that's really uh, that's really useful. Well, let, let's talk about mistakes because I I think you know I think it's really easy to go ahead and make lots of mistakes in terms of taxes because frankly. I don't think anyone on the planet has actually read our entire tax code all the way through, despite what Amanda wants to tell you. <laughs> so, so, you know, what, what, are, what are some common tax mistakes that you see investors make? Sure. Um, gosh, I think the, the most common one that I see uh, is probably just not claiming legitimate deductions. You know, a real estate investors, what, what a lot of us do is, you know, we're really good at claiming mortgage interest and property taxes and, you know, insurance, right? That's no brainers. Yep. But a lot of people aren't claiming uh, car expenses. So, when you know, if they drive to a property that they already own or driving to new properties or even driving to local real estate clubs, a lot of that is missed. Uh, or, you know, what you pay for membership dues to local RIA groups. Or websites um, like BiggerPockets. Oh, yes, exactly. That's also tax deductible in case anyone wanted to prepay that right now for the next 10 years. That's a really good idea, Amanda. That's, I, I strongly advise anyone to go to biggerpockets.com slash pro and, and sign up a year in advance. That's a great idea. That is a great idea. <laughs> um, gosh, I don't even know what I was talking about now. <laughs> oh, man, we were talking about mistakes. Mistakes. Okay. Yeah. So just making sure that you understand what are all the tax deductible items. Um, you know, if you're unsure, always ask your tax advisor, you know, how can I deduct that? So Brandon, you know, he has a cat, for example, right? How can <laughs> I how can I deduct my cat food? Well, it might not be possible, like but but if your cat is your security at a place that you're rehabbing, for example, oh, right? So maybe some idea. of those expenses could be tax deductible. So could you tax? Can you get a write off on like? I, well, most cities don't allow pit bulls, but can you get a write off on like a Doberman if you have a pet Doberman and put him in all your houses? Yeah, that's happened. That's happened in the past before. Actually, um, there's been court cases where uh, people were able to deduct to deduct pet food. Um, if their pets were used in their business. You know, uh, there was actually a court case where someone was able to deduct money that he paid to his girlfriend. And what happened was this guy was... <laughs> Wait, <laughs> why is he paying story. money to his girlfriend? <laughs> well, <laughs> you're Girl, getting ahead of me there. Is that girlfriend in quotation marks? <laughs> <laughs> so what she happened, did live in Vegas, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What... um. What happened was there was a guy, it was a real estate investor, actually, and uh, this went all the way up to the tax court. So real estate guy paid his girlfriend, took a write-off for it. At the end of the day, he was allowed to take the deduction because he paid his girlfriend to stay at one of the properties he was rehabbing because there was a lot of, you know, thefts and stuff. So he paid her to actually stay, you know, I don't know where it was, maybe it was in the ghetto, but she stayed there um, and he paid her for it and he was able to get a tax deduction. So I think that's similar to your scenario, Josh, yeah. about... A Doberman, but that might be better than sending your girlfriend there. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, if I, I want to send my girlfriend, unless she's like a third degree black belt, to to you know sit on a you know rehab property to protect it. Yeah, and my wife would be really pissed if I were paying. <laughs> yes, girlfriend girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes, your wife would be upset. <laughs> I just want to. I just want to acknowledge, Josh. You had the total opportunity to throw in a Detroit, uh, make fun of Detroit moment there, and you didn't. So uh, you're growing. You're you're maturing. That's good. 
Wait, I thought I thought I thought I heard something. I'm sorry. We, we're trying to keep a professional interview going here. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we are. All right. Anyway, so mistakes. We talked about those. You got any other good ones for us? Um, gosh, good. Another other good ones that not necessarily made by the taxpayer, but believe it or not, I see it quite a bit when um, people actually don't take depreciation expense. So that's something, you know, and, and that's more just a result of not working with a tax advisor yeah. who works with investors. But the easiest thing to do, what I always tell people is, to, you know, pull out your tax return from last year on the Schedule E. There's a line specifically called depreciation and there should be numbers on there for every property that you own. Um, if you don't see a number there, you know, obviously time to uh move your move your books to someone else. Yeah. Um, another mistake was the real estate professional. We talked a little bit earlier, uh, you know, Brandon, in, in your example, we have a lot of people who, you know, maybe the husband is doing is the husband or wife is working full time and doing real estate full time, right? So then neither of them is qualifying for real estate professionals. So that's a mistake that that could easily be fixed by, you know, just delegating by splitting the job so that one of you is doing real estate, the other one is is working at the full time job. Gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so, you know, it's interesting because there are so many little things that you can write off in your business. And I think people aren't aware of it. Um, you know, I, I used to be in the entertainment business. I used to live in SoCal. And, uh, you know, whenever you as, say that, I always think like you were a stripper. <laughs> God <laughs> forbid I was a stripper. Nobody wants to see that business. <laughs> anyway, entertainment business, you were. In yeah, there. no, but I mean, you, you can, you can deduct haircuts. I mean, you could, it, it's, you know, because your, your livelihood is what you look like. You know, for example, us, if you and I, you know, part of our business now is podcasting, right? This is part of our business. So, you know, anything to do with our throats, I mean, writing off, you know, lozenges and that kind of stuff. I mean, that, you know, I know it's minutia, but, you know, these are all little things that have to do with how we run our business. And, and those are accepted, acceptable write-offs, correct? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Cool. Interesting. All right. So, you know, n- next on the list here, and, and I, I Brandon's got this written down, and, and I'll let him ask because I think it's an appropriate question for him. <laughs> it's not an appropriate question for me. All right, so I don't have kids, but I hear they're expensive. I, I, that's, yes. I, that's what the rumor is. Um, my cats are expensive, and now I found <laughs> out I, I learned how I can deduct their cat food. So I'm going to go have my cats stay at my rental property. But <laughs> so if you have kids, those investors out there with kids, how can we get a tax deduction? For the money that we spend on those kids, if they're you know human kids, not cat kids, how do we how do we spend the like how do we get the tax deduction for that? Or, or is that even relevant at all to to real estate? Yeah, no, it's definitely very relevant. You know, earlier I was talking to you guys about how I I used to help my grandparents uh, paint their uh, vacant properties, right? And so my grandparents would pay me for the work that I was doing. And essentially, that's how, you know, that's how you, that's how you, you, you take a tax deduction. Instead of, you know, let's say you had two teenage boys, instead of just giving them money for them to buy a car and take girls out on dates, what you can do is you can have them come help you out in your business, help you paint, help you, uh, you know, do door knocking, um, hang posters, Anything that's business related, if they're helping you out in the business, you can pay them a reasonable salary and the amount of money you pay them becomes a tax deduction for you because that's a legitimate business expense. Now, is that not like violation of every child labor law? If my three-year-old was painting my 
rental houses? I mean, wouldn't I get in trouble? Um, so you'll have to, you'll have to, you'll have to figure out, you know, from the, from the, uh, EDD, well, that's what it is for California EDD on what the restrictions are. Typically every state will have requirements on, you know, how many hours a child can work if they're under the age of 10 or 12 or something like that. Um, but you know, you were in the entertainment industry, like you said, so you've seen, uh, babies who are part of diaper commercials or they're in the movies, right? I suppose that's true. That's, yeah. That's true. Oh, she got you, Josh. <laughs> oh man, I got burned. Well, I'm I'm putting my three year old, my five month old to work, baby. <laughs> Get painting, kids. You do have cute Before? kids. They could they could make it in the entertainment industry. <laughs> yeah. I, I, we're talking we're talking about real estate here. But, you know, let's screw our heads on, folks. <laughs> Before you put your kids uh, to work, okay, the IRS does have their own restrictions or their requirements, and it's not necessarily age related. Um, but what they do want is that that what you're hiring them to do is appropriate for their age, first of all, okay, and what you pay them is reasonable for what it is they're doing. So your five month old probably cannot be your IT guy. You probably can't pay her ten thousand dollars unless if you know she's pretty she's good with a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> she might do better than some of the contractors I've hired. <laughs> yeah. So those are so essentially those are the requirements. You know, it's something that is reasonable for their age, and then what you're paying them is something reasonable for the market. So if you weren't going to pay your son to paint for you, and you were paying someone else, you know, maybe you'd pay that person five hundred or a thousand dollars, and then that's what you would pay your kid. Interesting. Interesting. It's fascinating, and that's that's a whole explanation why our tax code's so screwed up. <laughs> well, well, that's a whole long, that's a whole long discussion. Um, all right, so let's let's move on to a topic that that's you know pretty pretty popular. It's self directed investing. Um, okay. Can can we start first with what is what is a self directed IRA? Uh, sure. Self-directed IRA is just like any other IRA that you, you know, like in the past, you typically, most people will go to their local bank or financial planner and open up an IRA. Um, the only difference with a self-directed IRA is you can use that to invest in real estate, notes, all sorts of assets. As compared to the regular IRA, you know, the, the banks will give you five or six different options of mutual funds or stocks or CDs. So that's really the only difference. All the rules are the same. The uh, contribution amounts are the same. The only difference is that you have more investment choices because you get to choose what you want to invest in. And, and what are those limits on the, on the IRA? Uh, for this year, it's, uh, the maximum is 5,500 for a regular IRA contribution. All right. So, so how does that help me as an, like, or maybe it doesn't help me if I don't have an IRA, if I wanted to use, like, I can't just go put 50,000 into an IRA and then go buy a rental house with that. Correct. That's out of the picture. Um, it, it, it depends, which is, you know, your least favorite. <laughs> um, Where's my so, bell? I want to, I want to get my like giant cane and like, you know, get her off stage. What? <laughs> So, so for this year, it is possible for some taxpayers to put fifty thousand or more into a retirement account oh, really? and use that for self-directed investing. Um, it it depends on how much income you have and what type of income that is. Okay, so to give you an example, if uh, if I was someone who's doing fix and flip real estate and I had a $100,000 profit, let's say, or you know, $200,000 profit, then it is possible for me, instead of paying taxes on $200,000, 
it's possible for me to put maybe 50,000 of that into a retirement account, get a deduction, and then use that 50,000 self-directed to buy a rental property. Is it, you say it's a, a certain income level. Does that mean you got to be a lower income or a higher income to get that? Um, it's a higher income because how much you can put into a retirement account is a calculation based on that income. Okay. So, you know, everyone knows about the IRA, right? So we can put 5,500 in it. Um, there are other retirement accounts like self-directed 401ks or self-directed SEP IRAs. Those are the more advanced accounts where you can put in, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 per year. Oh, okay. So, so it is possible. There are ways that a person could, they don't have to wait 10, 15 years in order to have enough money to, I mean, cause that's always what I used to think. I was like, well, if I can only put 5,000 a year in it, I'm going to be yeah, like, what can you do with it? yeah, I'm going to be 150 before I can buy anything with my, with my money. <laughs> but there are, there are answers to that. If you have a qualified professional telling you what to do, correct? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, right now, uh, I don't know if you have, if you have a 401k at work, let's say, um, you can put 17,500 this year into your 401k. Yeah. Where's my 401k? Come on. That's a good question. Where's mine? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's right. Yes. So, so if you did, if you had a good boss and he gave you 401k. (laughs) Oh my God. Um, Holy cow. Can we find another guest? I know. I don't think I'm coming back. The CPA is throwing jabs. (laughs) I'm going out firing. I love it. I love it. Um, So if, you know, so let's say not you, Brandon, but some, (laughs) let's say there's a listener on the call who had a 401k with their work and they put in 17,500. Well, they potentially could move that money into a self-directed account and use that for real estate investing, right? And the next year, maybe they put another 17,500 and move it over to a self-directed. So it is possible to do that in less than 100 years or whatever you said earlier. I had the same same, uh, question as Brandon. I think it's it's actually probably the best question he's ever asked on the show. But uh, I don't. Yeah. I don't think so. I got. I got better yeah. ones. Yeah. All right. Great. You're done. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so <laughs> we talked about mistakes for tax purposes. What about common mistakes you see people make with respect to uh, self-directed IRA investing? Common mistakes for self-directed investing. Gosh, I think the biggest one is um, sometimes I see people take money out of their retirement account to invest instead of going the self-directed route. Uh, you know, every year I probably have a handful of these people who talk to either their CPA or their financial advisor and they say, Hey, I am going to get into real estate. I have a bunch of retirement money. I want to move it over to real estate. And they say, Oh, no, the only way to do it is to take out your retirement account as a distribution, pay taxes, penalties, and then invest in real estate. So I say that's probably the biggest mistake is people not even knowing they can do it. Um, The tip is, you know, if you have an IRA or a 401k and you want to move it to a self-directed arena, what I recommend is just doing a direct custodian to custodian transfer. Meaning if the money right now is with Fidelity, you have Fidelity transfer it directly into a self-directed custodian so that the money never touches your hands. And that way you don't have to worry about potentially making a mistake and then having to pay taxes on that. Okay. And, and, and in terms of those custodians, so you can't open a self-directed just at any brokerage, correct? I mean, you, there are firms that are specific to that, uh, like N-Trust, Equity Trust, and, and on and on and on, correct? That is correct. So what happens a lot is, you know, if you if you have Fidelity, for example, and you go and you say, I want to open a self-directed account, and they're going to say, yeah, sure, we'll open one for you. 
However, here still, here are the 10 options you can invest in. So that's still not a truly self-directed. If you want real estate or notes or, you know, something other than the mark, the real, uh, something other than the stock market, it does have to be one of these special custodians. Gotcha. Hey, uh, could I, could I just jump in and ask a real basic question for, again, for those who are brand new to this stuff, what, what's the benefit of a self-directed IRA? I mean, why would we even want to do that? That's a great question. That is. Thank you. Look, I'm, <laughs> I'm full shocked. of questions today. Oh this my is, God. Man. This is, um, two reasons me. for self-directed IRA. <laughs> One is if you're someone, who, someone who's brand new to real estate and you want to buy a property, but you just don't have any money, you don't have cash, right? But all, why Well, all of your money is tied up in a retirement account that you've been putting money into for several years? So that's one reason why you want to use self-directed investing. It's cash that you can use for real estate. Um, the other reason really is just looking at return on investment. So if you're someone who's got some money accumulated in a retirement account and it's earning, you know, 2% in a CD or 5% in the stock market, but you know you can generate a higher return by putting into real estate, that's the reason why you want to self-direct that. That's right. That's cool. right. I didn't know CDs uh, actually turn out 2% these days. I thought it was still like, you know, half a percent. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. And, and before we move to the ne- next section here, do you have any best practices you suggest with respect to uh, self-directed investing? Uh, best practice? Uh, I would say the main thing, uh, I guess the number one tip I would say would be if you know that you want to do self-directed investing, um, move your money over and open the account first. What a lot of people tend to do is they'll keep their money with Fidelity and then they're going to look for properties. And then one day they're going to find that perfect property or the perfect deal. But they forget that it's going to take anywhere from a week to a few weeks to move that money over. And yeah. by the time the money's over, the deal is gone. Um, so yeah, once you make that decision, you know, I do want to go the self-directed route. I no longer want my money in the mar in the stock market. Then it's, you know, it's time to move the money over. So it's parked and ready for you to deploy. Gotcha. Gotcha. I've got a question. This is a, not a personal, but this is a question a friend of mine is dealing with (laughs) since Brandon got to ask a question. (laughs) I know somebody who's got a property that uh, the property is partially their home and partially a, a business. And uh, can, you, can you actually 1031 a property like that? Or, or how, how would that work? Yes, you can. You, um, so is this like a duplex? That no, for example, well, I guess that's probably something similar. If it were like a, a, a house on a ranch and the ranch is the business and the house is the house, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can. You definitely can 1031 exchange. Um, the thing that I would you know, encourage you to look at is, you know, as a primary home, if you're someone who's married, you do get up to $500,000 of tax-free gain already, yeah. right? So if you do a 1031 exchange, you are potentially losing out on that uh, tax-free gain. So gotcha. that's just something to strategize on. But yes, that is possible. No, that, that's good. I just, you know, I felt like Brandon asked a personal question and I thought <laughs> it might be appropriate that I get, you know, my four minutes of, of free counsel. No, but I okay. actually think, Josh, you touched on something really good that we need to is every real estate investor works from home. I mean, like they may have a job as well, but they obviously uh-huh. have their base of operation at some point in their house. So let's talk about the home office deduction. Uh, mm-hmm. How does that, what is that? How does that work? And 
Should we even claim it? Is that just wow. a red flag? Another good question. I'm on fire. Yes. On fire, fire, fire. <laughs> Home office deduction is is actually, like you said, you know, most real estate investors actually have one. Uh, a lot of times I see people not claiming it. And the reason is because the of the scare tactics, right? Maybe the old CPA said, oh, it's a red flag. It's super mm-hmm. scary. Um, but in fact, uh, one of the changes that came out this year is the IRS is actually making it easier for people to claim the home office deduction. So they're doing it where, you know, in our car, like for car expenses, you can do a standard standard mileage deduction. Um, you now have that option with the home office too. So instead of keeping receipts for all of your, um, you know, electricity bills and that you know, phone bills and all that, you could you could potentially take a, a standard deduction from the home office. Okay. In terms of who qualifies, um, essentially two things. That space has to be exclusively used for the business, meaning you can't also have your baby's nursery be, you know, right there. You, you can't be working from the nursery. Your office can't also happen to be your dining room, kitchen table. Okay. Yeah, you need so a dedicated exclusive. space, right? Exactly. Dedicated space. Um, and the other, the other requirement is that it has to be the place where you're primarily, where primarily your business is run. So, you know, a, a common example would be, you know, uh, a realtor, okay? A lot of times realtors work from their office. That's where they make offers. They look up properties and stuff like that. But they also go to the broker's office because there's like a temporary hoteling cube that they can go to or they maybe use the conference room, for example, mm-hmm. at the broker's office, right? So that's that's an example of where home office works because even though you go somewhere else to meet with clients, but your home is where you do most of your actual work, that allows you to claim the home office deduction. Fabulous. Yeah, that's yeah. fabulous. Amanda, I wish we had more time. I really do. We, you know, we didn't talk about 1031s. We didn't talk about a lot of things that, that I wanted to, but, but we, we, we've got to move on. We've got to. And uh, you know what's going to happen is Amanda is going to keep writing amazing content on Bigger Pockets, and uh, you could learn all sorts of great information from her uh, there. And with that, I think it's time to move the fire round it's time for the fire round (laughs) all right these these questions all come directly from the bigger pockets forum this these are all actually from the like tax uh forum so uh let's just go with uh number one here our business slash real estate books tax deductible and then the second half of that question is what about guru boot camps? If you go to some, you know, $20,000 weekend boot camp, are those all tax deductible? Yes, they're definitely tax deductible. No, they better be. Cool. <laughs> I know it's, for, only, it's about the only value you'll get out of it. What, what about a cruise? What about an investor cruise? Like if the BP Ooh. Summit was at sea or something, that would be cool. But. Yes, that's a little bit tricky. And that's, uh, I'm gonna, the short answer is generally the cruises are not deductible. Um, and that's just a loophole that they have about cruises being on international waters and why that's not deductible. Really? Wow. Yeah. So if you guys are planning a cruise, we're not. Man, that cruise industry lobby needs to get on the IRS. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. All right. Okay. Well, look, no, no cruise for the bigger pockets next summit, but that's all right. Uh-huh. I'm still going on one in February. I'm just not deducting it. Ah, I'm going in January. Nice, nice. Oh, must be nice. Huh? Yeah, I'm going hey, nowhere. Yeah, what is yours? Oh, that's right. You have kids and, you know. I'm <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow, I like you less and less every day. <laughs> Good. 
So, uh, Amanda, next question. Should a real estate investor have a health savings account? Uh, yes. Generally, I would say yes. If they qualify, if they have a high deductible insurance, why not? I love the HSA because it's one of the only things in the world that gives you a tax deduction when you put money in. It grows tax-free and the money comes out tax-free. And more importantly, you can use that money into real estate. There's self-directed HSAs as well. I've so heard that. That's no fascinating. Interesting. Is there a limit on how much you can put into an HSA? Yes, I think it's a little bit over 3000 this year for single and then a little over, I think it's about 6200 for family coverage. Oh, so you can actually use this to buy Detroit property. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Josh. You got it in there. <laughs> you could. All cash. Yeah, all well. Cash. Hey, I mean, because obviously you can't do squatting in, in Los Angeles. Yeah, you can't. Well, what about this then? Could you, this is going to be my next fire round question, even though I didn't have it pre-written. All right, a wholesaler. If they were to take uh, $1,000 from their HSA or their self-directed IRA, and then they were to use it as a earnest money on a property, and then they were to mm-hmm. flip that contract to another buyer and they were to make 10 grand on it, is that, ta- mm-hmm. that 10 grand tax-free? Correct. Wow. It is tax-free. So, really? so a wholesaler has a really large incentive for having a uh, you know, tax planning strategy. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Ooh, that's that's pretty nice. That's pretty nice. All right, I've I've got one. A uh, a tenant completely trashed my unit. Been there, done that, and now it needs a total rehab. Can I count the entire project as a repair, uh, or or do I have to uh, um, uh, do I have to expense it? Uh-huh. Uh huh. I probably I'm, I think my answer is going to be an unpopular one. Uh, it's going to be it depends. It depends <laughs> on what are the items that are being fixed. So, you know, maybe the fact that they trashed the toilet, the appliances, you have to redo all that. That would be re- that would be repairs expense. Um, if as part of that, you have to redo drywall yeah. and all those, you know, those kinds of things, that would still be an improvement, unfortunately. Interesting. Fascinating. Okay. All the more reason to talk to your accounting professional, isn't it? Yes. Very good. Yeah. All right. Next question. Can I deduct the cost of an iPad? If I plan on using it at least in part for business, but I'm sure I will also play some Angry Birds with it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. My answer depends on if the IRS is listening to this show or not. (laughs) So, IRS, if you're listening, no, it's not deductible. It has to be uh, 100% business use. Um, You know, but I think, though, in reality, most people are using our devices majority for business. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe sometimes if you happen to play Angry Bird on it, which I highly recommend against. But if you happen (laughs) to, I think that's immaterial enough. You can probably get away with it. Fascinating. All right. Last last question here. Um, Amanda, I, I need help. Amanda? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. hi. I, Amanda, <laughs> I clear, Amanda's falling asleep on her own interview. <laughs> Amanda, I need help. I'm, I'm getting audited from the IRS. What do I do first? Uh, <laughs> well, that's a good question. And in fact, we've seen audits on the, ri- you know, on the rise. My, um, not for our clients, fortunately. We really haven't had that many. But my uncle, who's also a CPA, uh, he said that he's seen tons of audits. And in fact, he was thinking of changing his business so that he specializes in dealing with <laughs> audits. Um, 
So, so, uh, you know, if you get audited, I, I really, you know, the, the first thing is don't freak out, right? You know, just take a deep breath. And then my suggestion is to send that notice to your tax advisor, okay? Whoever prepared that return. You might have changed CPAs from that time because, you know, you might be being audited for like a few years ago. But send it to the person who prepared it first. Um, and see, you know, if they include audit protection as part of their fees or, you know, if there's going to be any additional fees for that. It's generally better to have someone represent you because there's a buffer point. Yeah. Okay, so what, what happens is if my client got audited and they said, what is this? What is this $30,000 expense? Or give me your documentation for your real estate hours. Well, now I have time. I can say, oh, well, let me find the client and ask, you know, so now that buys you a week to put this stuff together. If you represent yourself, you're sitting across from the agent, you kind of have to just, you know, show them what you have. Gotcha. gotcha. Good, good tip. All right, yeah, good, good, good fire tip. round. Good fire round. But, uh, anyway, all right, so fire round. That was great. Lots of, uh, lots of good stuff. I, I, think, uh, I think it's time to, to move this forward and, and uh, move on to the famous four. All right, <laughs> famous four. These are the same questions we ask every guest and uh, I like these questions. So number one, what do you? What is your favorite real estate book? Oh gosh, I have to say Rich Dad Poor Dad because that was my first. I don't know if that's necessarily real estate specific, but it, it's good. I know it's my it's my choice too. So there you go. All right, fabulous, fabulous. All right, Amanda, your favorite business book, and no, you cannot cite the IRS code. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really like. Uh, the four hour work week. Yes. Okay. Because uh, I'm a very lazy person. I like to work as hard as possible. I'm glad uh, to hear that about the person I was about to hire as my accountant. <laughs> <laughs> but it's about working smarter, right? Oh, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. All right. That's, that's a very popular book amongst our, our guests. Uh, what, what about hobbies? Surely it's not all number crunching for you. Do you, uh, you do anything exciting out there in the land of uh, sunny California? Yes. I'm afraid I'm going to have to bore you guys on this one. My favorite <laughs> hobby is actually eating. I love eating. Nice. I'm a foodie. Uh, I love going to all types of restaurants and hole nice. in the walls. You nice. know, Yelp stuff. Yeah. Wait, where where do you live in Southern California? Uh, in Orange County in Fullerton. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm a foodie too. And I, I love uh, going to restaurants in SoCal when I get out there. And uh, so that's awesome. Foodie Foodies unite. I just like pizza. <laughs> I just want pizza. That's mm, bad. Pizza. <laughs> All right. Final question of the famous four. From a tax standpoint, what do you believe sets apart the real estate investors who succeed and do great from those who don't and they maybe, you know, I don't know, fail, give up, whatever? <laughs> um, so y when you say from a tax standpoint, you mean like a good at saving taxes? Yeah, maybe like, like you know, mostly they ask this question always like, what do you see successful investors do differently? But I kind of want to get your your take on what do you see from a tax standpoint? Th those who save the most taxes or have the best luck with taxes or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. I mean, what, the people who scam the system the best. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> the people who play the system the best, not scam it. Like, what are they, what's the difference between them and everyone else? Got it. Okay. They pay um, Amanda cash under the, <laughs> under the desk is probably answer number one. <laughs> uh, I, I think, you know, even within the tax world, I think the most successful real estate investors are the ones who actually um, implement 
So for example, we, we do a lot of tax planning with our clients. So we come up with strategies and ideas, uh, but it's only as helpful as your willingness to actually implement. So if we're talking about opening entities or setting up retirement accounts, um, you know, simplistically just following directions, right? If your advisor tells you to do something, you do it, and then you see the results of tax saving. So I think that would be my answer to your question. Good right. answer. I like it. It's a good answer. Amanda, I, I got to tell you, you've been a great sport. Yes. No, seriously, you. you've put up with Brandon's <laughs> abuse throughout the show. <laughs> and uh, you've answered concisely and definitively in every question asked of you. Never waffling or wavering, you know, <laughs> never giving a it depends. And, and we appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on the show. Hey, it's been, no, honestly, it's been a real pleasure. We've really enjoyed it. And, and, and to be frank, I was, I was a little nervous. I said to Brandon yesterday, I was like, Brandon, we're doing a show on taxes. This is going to be incredibly boring. And I've been at the edge of my seat the whole time. So it's, it's really good stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Amanda. We'll see you on the site. All right, everybody. That was Amanda Hahn, the CPA from hell. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> no, Amanda's awesome, awesome, awesome. We love her. Uh, she, uh, you know, if you guys haven't checked out her, her stuff on the Bigger Pockets blog, definitely do that. We really, really want to thank her for the time. And uh, as, as we talked about up top, um, definitely check her out on the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 49. But as we said earlier, uh, you know, don't get into your whole story and ask her for free advice. You know, if you've got questions about anything we talked about, fabulous. But uh, you know, you're gonna have to hire uh, a CPA, guys, if you want that financial yeah. feedback. Um, otherwise, you know, thanks as always for listening. This is uh, we wanted to make sure to get this show in before the end of the year uh, because there are some really good last minute tips in there. So hopefully, you got those. That's it. Keep following us. Keep uh, keep engaging. And uh, don't forget that quick tip about Gmail from the front of the show. And otherwise, jump on Bigger Pockets if you're not doing it already. We, we'd love to have you. We'd love to see you participating and, and growing your network with, with us. So uh, come on board. That's, uh, that's about it. I'm Josh Dorkin, signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio. Simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 49. <laughs> There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. 
See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.